literal kingdom on the earth where Christ reigns. Uh, Right now, all Christians are living in the spiritual kingdom of God, but there's coming a time when that kingdom will become a physical kingdom here upon the earth. It's a kingdom where Christ reigns in perfect righteousness, and all who live in that kingdom will live under the strict enforcement of God's law. And even though there will be unregenerate people in this kingdom, yet they're going to suffer the swift justice of the king if they disobey him. And you can imagine that under such a system with, where righteousness reigns and where God is in complete control and people must listen to everything that he says, that God is not going to leave a wild card, you might say, out there to upset the kingdom. He doesn't want anybody to, to try to instigate sin in other people. He doesn't want anybody to defy his laws. And so he's going to remove the temptations for sin. That's part of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. And he's going to remove the person that's responsible for those temptations. And I don't think you have to guess who that is. That's the devil. And what the devil does every single day of his existence is to try to get people to defy God. He even tries to get God's own people to defy him. And God is simply not going to allow that in the millennial kingdom. And so what he will do, he will take Satan and shut him away, shut him up for a period of 1,000 years. And the beginning of chapter 20 tells us how God will do this, where he's going to be, And that's where we're spending our time this evening. So if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 1, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. In the 19th chapter and in verse 15, the scripture says that Christ will smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And I think that we have a double reference there. I think on one side that it's talking about those that are unsaved, living in the kingdom, and God will rule them in such a way that they are not going to be able to defy him, and if they do, swift justice will ensue. But I think on the other hand, this is also a rod or a staff of protection for God's people. We won't have to worry about sin in the world, and uh, the Lord is going to rule us, and he's going to lead his children with the benevolence of a compassionate king. And since there are people that are in that kingdom that aren't saved, the resistance to the lordship of Christ has to be squelched. And so Satan can't be free to roam the earth to do what he does now. God is simply not going to allow that. And the beginning of this chapter explains how God is going to remove Satan from the world. Now, if you remember, in the 12th chapter, when we studied there, that Satan and all of his angels were cast out of heaven. Now, that's a future event that Satan right now has access to heaven. I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, he's cast out of heaven. He's cast down to the earth. So his movements are restricted to this physical world. And when that happens, he becomes so angry at this that... Satan just takes all of his wrath, the greatest amount of destruction, the greatest amount of deception that's possible, and he pours that over the whole world with all of his demons that are there to assist him. And especially in the last part of the tribulation, 
That's a period that's going to be filled with vile, demonic activity. Demons will be running loose on the earth. So the whole earth is going to be uh, consumed, going to be, uh, people are going to be tempted by those demons, and men will work out the fullness of the depravity of their hearts. And in the last lesson, as we talked about this, we, we saw how that before the flood, that conditions were similar to that, that men were continually evil. And so God destroyed the entire world with a flood. And the time of tribulation will be similar to that, only it's going to be much, much worse. And in this particular place, it brings about the destruction of the world's armies at Armageddon. Peter addressed this in Second Peter chapter 3, after speaking about people that scoff at the Lord's coming and those that disbelieve that God is coming with vengeance upon the world, he reminds them of what happened before the flood. In Second Peter chapter 3, he says, For this they, are willingly, they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So the antediluvian period, and if you that just simply means the time before the flood, the antediluvian period was a time of rampant demonic activity. And in the tribulation, it'll be the same. So great deception is going to occur over the entire world. Well, the same problem would be true in the millennial kingdom if Satan was allowed to be free. And so God's not going to allow that. If he deceives people, then the millennial kingdom would very soon become just like the world during the tribulation time. And we see that's actually what happens at the end of the millennium because Satan is loosed. And there you'll find in verses 7 and 8, he's loosed for a short time and then he deceives the people again, making them think that they can overthrow God. So God's not going to permit that during the millennium. Instead, he's going to bind Satan and he'll put him into prison. Now, there's where we spent some time last week. We talked about the placement of Satan in prison. And in verse number 3, this place is called the bottomless pit. That's the word that, the same word from which we get our English word, the abyss. And it's the place where multitudes of evil angels were placed when they first rebelled against God, way back at the very beginning of creation. The Bible indicates that at the time that Satan fell, when he had his rebellion against God, that there were one-third of all the angels that also rebelled with him. Now, some of those evil angels were put into this abyss, to the bottom, into the bottomless pit when they sinned. But Satan has enough help in the world today, even by the ones that that weren't put there, that his influence makes him appear that he's omnipresent. Now, he's not present everywhere at the same time, but there are so many of these demons that assist Satan that we say he is ubiquitous, which means that he appears that he's everywhere at the same time. And we could not fathom what this world would be like If all of those evil angels that were put into the abyss at the very beginning, if all of those, in addition to the ones that are free now, if they were all loose upon the world, you couldn't imagine what kind of havoc that we would have. And we see some of that as we look into chapter 9, and there are 200 million more demons that are released on the earth. So there are perhaps millions, 
billions, even trillions of angels. We don't know how many there are. Some of them were put into the abyss at the beginning. They're held there until God brings judgment upon them, and then he takes them out of the abyss and casts them into the lake of fire. So all of these demons that were put there at the beginning, they are not in hell right now. The abyss is not hell. It may have some of the same similar or similar characteristics as hell, but it's not hell. And that's evidenced by the fact that God is going to call them up from there and cast them into the lake of fire. But whatever it is, whatever the abyss is, we know that these evil angels don't want to be there. And we saw that in the story of the maniac of Gadara, how they pleaded with Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. So the abyss, this is where Satan is going to be placed for a thousand years. Well, who has the task of doing this? Who who is it that's going to bind Satan? Well, we find that in verse number 1, and he is the angel over the abyss. Verse number 1 says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. So there is an angel that has a key to the abyss, and that key is a symbol of authority. He has God's authority to lock the abyss, so that none of the the demons can escape. None of them are going to be let out until God determines to do so. And when Satan is put there, he won't be able to escape. Now, perhaps Satan is, I think, the most powerful angel that was ever created, but this angel over the abyss is given more power than Satan. And we speculated in the last message that that could be Michael the archangel. Michael has a history in the Bible of tangling with Satan. And he's the one who commands the Lord's host in uh, Revelation chapter 12. He is the one that won the war with Satan or will win the war with Satan and cast him out of heaven. So it very well could be that Michael is the one who binds Satan. The scripture doesn't tell us that, but I think we have some uh, good evidence to believe that that may be so. Now we notice in verse number 1 also that he has a great chain in his hand. So I want you to talk, I want to talk about that, the chain that controls. In verse number one, there's a chain, and in verse number two, the angel takes that chain and he binds Satan. And before we discuss that chain, notice the many descriptions that the Bible gives of Satan. He's called the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. In chapter 12, verse number 9, those same descriptions are given, and so we are reminded once again of the evil terrible character of this creature that's called Satan. He is called the dragon, and that refers to his beastly character. He's ravenous and he's fierce. He's called the old serpent. And I'm sure you recognize that reference. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when he appeared to Eve as a serpent. Now, at that time, this wasn't a part of my message tonight, but just to kind of remind you what's going on there, at that time, the snakes didn't crawl on the ground. The snakes were upright. I don't want any snakes to be upright. I don't like them on the ground. I don't want them upright, that's for sure. But he appeared to evil, uh, to Eve, and, and a serpent, that's just a picture of evil character, deceitful character. And still today, when you find a deceitful person, what do you call him? A snake in the grass. Same thing. So he's called the devil also, and that speaks of his slanderous accusations. And what is Satan doing right now? The Bible says that he appears in heaven now accusing God's people. So Satan has not yet been totally 
cast out of heaven to the point that he has no access there, he still does. But thank the Lord, the Bible also tells us that we have Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, he is our lawyer that defends us against all of those accusations of Satan. And then also I want to remind you that there is only one devil. In our King James Version, uh, the Bible speaks of Christ casting out devils. That's not the same word that we find here in the book of Revelation. That's a word that should have been translated as demons. The demons are different from the devil. There's only one devil. There are, as I said, perhaps millions, billions, trillions of demons. So all of those demons are Satan's helpers. And then, of course, he has the name Satan, and Satan means adversary. He's the great adversary. He's the opponent of God and his people. And so you take all of those names that are given here and you roll all of that together and you see why that God cannot let him disturb the peace of the millennial kingdom. If he's free, then the millennial kingdom is not the place that God will intend for it to be. Well, what about the chain? Do we have a problem with this chain? Well, if we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, which of course we do, how then are you going to explain the chain? And how are you going to bind a spiritual being? And that's a problem for many people. So what they do is they try to allegorize this text. They change it around, try to make it work, because it doesn't seem possible that you can have a physical chain that binds a spirit being. So some say that this chain is actually a body of evidence. It's a body of evidence that supports the Bible. One person said that this is the discovery of great archaeological evidence that proves that the Bible is true. And of course, there is great archaeological evidence for the Bible. There are a lot of times, in, and even in the last uh, uh, 50, 60, 70 years or so, that people have said, well, the Bible can't be true because there are ancient cultures that are mentioned in the Bible, and we can't find any evidence of them anywhere in history, so the Bible must not be true. But then they found out that the Bible was true because they did find or they do have the archaeological evidence to prove that those cultures actually did exist. So you have a person here that says, well, this is that archaeological evidence, and that's what binds Satan. It makes his, his detraction of the Bible, trying to discredit the Bible, it makes it useless because history proves what the Bible says. Well, well that's what happens when you start to spiritualize the Bible. When you do that, then you're going to come up with all different kinds of interpretations. I mean, can you imagine how many interpretations that you could put on this to describe what this chain is? Uh, that one says archaeological evidence, that's the chain. Somebody else might say, well, no, it's not that. It's all the miracles that are done in the world today that prove that God exists. Somebody else might come along and say, well, no, that, that, that chain is the chain of the Holy Spirit's influence, that Satan tries to blind the eyes of people to the gospel of Christ, but the Holy Spirit is able to overcome that blindness. And so that binds Satan. And you can go on and on and on. You can come up with hundreds of explanations for what the chain is. So we still have a problem if we have a literal interpretation of the Bible. How do we have an immaterial angel binding the immaterial Satan with a material chain? How can that happen? Well, I think you have the same problem if you're going to talk about angelic warfare. How does one spirit being affect another spirit being? I mean, how would you even see the evidence of that? How would you know that? You see, there's some things that we simply cannot fathom in our minds about the spiritual world. 
It's useless for us to try to figure out things that happen in the spiritual world because our minds simply cannot comprehend that. We can't see it. We don't know about it. All we have is what the Bible says. So we know this, that often in Scripture, that what the Bible does, it ascribes physical characteristics to immaterial beings. And so John says, I saw a chain. And just like he saw Christ coming from heaven riding a white horse. How do you explain that? Well, I don't know. Someday we're going to understand all of that. But it shows us that God uses these physical characteristics sometimes to explain the spiritual world. And I think that's what we have here. It is a chain. How it happens, I don't know. But it's the very same word that we find used in other places of Scripture. The same Greek word for chain is used in Luke, number eight, uh, Luke chapter 8. There's, that's the story of the maniac who was, who was bound with the chains and the, and the chains couldn't hold him because of all the demons that were in him. Same word is also used for Peter when he was in prison in Acts chapter 12 and he was chained in the prison. But his chains fell off when the angel came and kicked him in the side and told him to get up. Same word that we find here in Revelation chapter 20. So there's no reason to believe that this is not what John saw. To him, it was a chain. And he saw the angel bind Satan, and with that chain, he held him in the bottomless pit. Now, let me return for just a minute to the problems that all millenarians have when they try to uh, look at these verses and try to allegorize Scripture. Now, we've already discussed how that in their system of interpretation, they don't see any literal fulfillment of this in Scripture. So they don't believe that Christ is going to rule in a physical kingdom. They believe we are living in the kingdom right now. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom only, and that kingdom has already begun. And all that we're waiting for right now is for Christ to come back. So what are they going to do when they come to this text? I mean, how are you going to deal with the binding of Satan? In what sense, if we are living in the kingdom right now, in what sense is Satan literally bound? Now, what do the scriptures say about Satan? Paul wrote that he's like a lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Now, I wish that Satan was bound right now. I don't like the idea of a lion out there ready to eat me. That's what the Bible says that Satan is doing right now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So does that sound like Satan is bound? If we're living in the kingdom right now, is Satan actually bound? Satan should be locked away somewhere if we're living in the kingdom now. So how does he deceive people? How are you going to explain verse number 8? In verse number 8, it says Satan is loosed, and he goes back out to deceive people again. So what's the difference between verse number 8 and verse number 3? How do you reconcile 2 Corinthians chapter 4 of Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 if we're living in the kingdom right now? So how are you going to apply all those verses? Those are problems that you run into when you choose to allegorize the text, when you don't believe any of this is literally true, and you try to make up some kind of other interpretation than simply believing what the Bible says. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 24, and we'll look at an interesting scripture here that describes what happens to Satan and all the evil angels during the millennium. Isaiah chapter 24 and verse number 21 And I'll remind you once again 
uh, while you're turning there, of that lesson that we had a few weeks ago on Bible interpretation, the literal interpretation of Scripture is always going to take you back to facts. It'll take you back to statements that make sense in the light of the entirety of Scripture. Now, what the allegorical method leaves you doing is what we explained just a moment ago. You're trying to explain away things that are clearly stated in Scripture. So you, you have people that try to explain away this thing, and, and they say all the blessings that come to Israel, that God promises to Israel, Israel doesn't actually get. It's a spiritual thing, and it's happening now in the kingdom. But all the curses that God promised in the Old Testament, Israel will get all of those. Well, how, again, how are you going to make all that fit together? Well, we find something here that, that exactly matches what we read in Revelation. The literal hermeneutic takes full advantage of the historical context. Now, if you look at verses 21 and 22 in Isaiah 24, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Who is he talking about when he says the host of high ones that are on high? that Satan and his evil angels. Now, you can stay right there for just a minute. Let me read to you Ephesians 6, verse 12. It says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the obvious reference there is to to evil spirits. These are the high places and the high ones that are on high. So in the millennial kingdom, the demonic powers... And Satan himself will be shut down. All of them are locked away in the abyss. So we couldn't be living in the millennium now, as the amillenarians teach, because Satan is extremely active in the world now. In fact, I would say that Satan is more active now than he has ever been. He's more active than he was in the Old Testament. What what did he have to do in the Old Testament? He was concerned with one group of people and one small little nation on the other side of the world called Israel. And all that Satan had to do was keep everything confined to that one little strip of land that we know of as Israel. That's all he had to worry about in the Old Testament. In the New Testament times, now he has to contend with the church in the world. And now the church has spread throughout the entire known world, everywhere in the world. Missionaries have gone out, and the kingdom of God is advancing in that sense. That spiritual kingdom is advancing because people are continually being saved all around the world. So Satan is much more active now trying to stop people from believing in Christ, blinding their their eyes to the gospel of Christ. So he's much more active than he ever has been. So you can't say that Satan is bound right now and we're living in the spiritual kingdom. The scriptures don't support it. Now let's go back to Revelation 20, and I I want us to notice here what I would call a double lockdown for Satan. And this is in verse number 3. We start with verse number 2 once again. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him. Now thirdly here, letter C on your listening sheet, is the seal that shuts him in. Now apparently, God's not content with just the chain. And I don't think that God is afraid that Satan somehow is going to wiggle out of that chain, and that Satan is going to stage a prison break out of the abyss. 
God's not really worried about that. But for double emphasis, there's a seal that's placed on the abyss, and that doubly assures us that Satan cannot harm us during the kingdom. Now, let let me set up a remarkable contrast for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is explaining how that God's people were chosen before the foundation of the world, and that's, of course, an infallible guarantee of our eternal security. So if you don't believe in election predestination, you just missed out on one of the greatest uh, proofs that we have, certain guarantees of God's salvation, permanent salvation. But Paul goes on in that chapter, and in verses 11 through 13 in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ." in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. In the fourth chapter, verse number 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. It's the same word that we're reading here in Revelation. Sealed. And the word actually means a stamp. It's like a security mark. It's like the king placing his personal seal on something that it's not to be tampered with. And so the seal is put there to indicate the security of it. So that's a way also that God has guaranteed our eternal security with a stamp, with a seal of the Holy Spirit. He put the seal of the Almighty King upon our, our salvation, and the Spirit is that seal. And you could never be lost. So you can look at all the things that are written there in Romans chapter 8, go through that chapter, and you see all the possibilities that are ruled out. As a child of God, you cannot be unsealed. The only way that you could be unsealed, to lose your salvation, is someone greater than the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes along and breaks the seal. There ain't no such animal. It's not going to happen. There is no one that can break the seal. So we're secure in our salvation. And the contrast here is that God puts a seal on the abyss so that it can't be broken. And so Satan, with all of his power, with all the billions of evil angels that are in the abyss and all of their power rolled together, is not enough to break that seal to get out of the bottomless pit. They can't get out until God unlocks the gate himself. Now let me give you another contrast here. And that is that the seal of man can never keep God in. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 27 for just a minute. The most powerful emperor in the world could not shut God in. The choir sang about that just a few minutes ago. What happened when Jesus was put into the tomb? Well, Matthew 27 tells us. Now watch what happened at the tomb of Jesus. Matthew 27 verse number 62. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation... The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing it, sealing the stone and setting a watch. 
A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, wrote this. He said, The sealing was done in the presence of the Roman guards who were left in charge to protect the stamp of Roman authority and power. And I think you know what happened on the third day. The Roman guards were helpless to try and protect that seal. The authority and the the might of the Roman Empire that was behind that seal was as worthless as a plugged nickel. And when Christ was ready to come out of the tomb, he came out of the tomb. Well, Satan, nor his minions, have the ability to break the seal. They're chained in darkness in the abyss, and they'll be sealed there until God breaks that seal and lets them out. Now, let me move on then to the last point, and I could make another entire sermon here to deal with this last point, but I'm going to just squeeze this one in tonight. It's going to take us just a little bit longer to finish up. Then we'll be ready to move on next time. No services next Sunday night, but in two weeks we'll come back and we'll talk some more, but we're going to move on to a different part of the millennium. But now, number two here is the purpose of Satan's punishment. This is not his, his, his permanent punishment. Sealing up, sealing him up for a thousand years in the abyss, that's not the end of him. The final punishment comes along in verse number 10, and we'll deal with that verse when we come to it. But he does receive some punishment here in verses 1 through 3. He's in the abyss, and the abyss is not Scandia. It's not a theme park, and there's no fun there. Satan does not want to go there. Fallen angels do not want to be put into the abyss. And you can just bet on this that Satan doesn't want to be put there even for a minute. It's not a good place to be. But why is he there? The purpose is in verse number 3, that he should deceive the nations no more. Will there be sin in the millennium? Yes, there will. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. There will be sin because there are sinners. These are the people that have to be ruled with a rod of iron. So it tells us you don't need Satan to have sin. What Satan does, he intensifies sin. He sets the trap for people. He lays all the snares that people fall into. But Satan is not the cause of sin. Sin comes out of the person's heart. Jesus said the environment doesn't cause you to sin. He said, sin is down in the human heart, and it exists there for every single person born into the world. Our hearts are evil. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So you don't have to have Satan to have sin. Satan just helps it along. Well, they're not going to be here, of course, as I've said. Satan's going to be gone. All the demons that help him are going to be gone. And why do they need to be gone? Well, so they can't deceive people. So I'm going to finish up tonight by giving you two important areas of deception that Satan is not going to be able to use during the millennium. Well, first of all, he will not be able to deceive with the written word. And do you know what Satan spends his time doing now and how he affects many people today? Satan loves to pervert Scripture. The authoritative standard that we are to live by is found in the Word of God. The Bible, that's the authoritative standard. When Jesus was dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, this was one of the issues that he dealt with. They had perverted God's law. The Sermon on the Mount was how they had perverted God's law, and Jesus was taking care to correct all of that. The written word is found in the law and in the prophets. And so Jesus uh, taught them in the Sermon on the Mount about the law because the law had become unrecognizable under the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And so there's all these mistakes about the written word that, that Jesus corrected in the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly, what was the Sermon on the Mount about? It's about the kingdom. It's about life in his kingdom. So what do you suppose that Satan spends his time doing today? Well, much of his efforts are directed at God's word. Now, I've given you here some subheadings under this for three ways that Satan attempts to, to destroy the written word. The first way that he tries to do this is by misinterpretation. Now, part of the reason that we have hundreds of denominations in the world today is because of misinterpretation. And we've talked about that some here in our study of of Revelation. When people are using an allegorical method of trying to interpret the Scriptures, then they they take uh, the personal subjective standard that they've established rather than the objective standard word of God, the authority. And so you come up with all these strange interpretations. And so people are really unconcerned about harmonizing all of the scriptures, so they approach the scriptures from an angle that they have a doctrine that they want to prove. And so they go looking for scriptures that support their doctrine, whether it fits with the whole or not. So misinterpretation of scripture, that's one of the ways that Satan deceives about the written word. Secondly, he does it with translation. Satan tries to destroy the written word with translation. What what do I mean? Well, this year just happens to be the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. From 1611 to 2011, the King James Bible is what some have called the gold standard of translation. And we use the King James Version because we respect it. Uh, But in this last generation... Uh, the, the, the modern generation that we live in now, the King James Version of the Bible, is, has been rejected largely. It's not the exclusive translation any longer, the one that's most trusted. And there were, there were always other versions of Scripture in, in, in English, even way before our modern era, but those were not regarded as authoritative as the King James Version. But that's not true anymore today. You go into a Christian bookstore... And it's almost impossible to find a King James Bible. And the odd thing about it is, in the Christian bookstores, it's hard to find a Bible at all. I mean, it's filled up with all kinds of other junk of what people have written, and it's hard to find a Bible. I get, get, you know, I I have a huge collection of Bibles. I think I've told you before, I I don't know how many I have. I've probably got 50 or 60 Bibles. I just keep changing and changing and looking for something a little, not not a different Bible, but a different cover or, or a... A different print on the pages and stuff like that that's easier for me to read or something. So I'm changing Bibles all the time until I find something that I like. But now I don't have hardly any choices anymore. It's hard to find anything anymore because people just don't buy the King James Bibles. So they have translated the Bible in different ways, and um, they say this is for clarification. It's to make it easier for you to read. And I'll admit that sometimes I go to other translation of Scripture to get a a particular understanding of some of the words that are used. And uh, there's not anything wrong with that. But the King James Version is where I go for my final authority. that's, That's always the place that I go because I respect the text that it's translated from and I respect the translators. Now, interestingly, this afternoon, I was listening to a sermon that uh, Rick Warren preached. 
And be thankful you don't go to his church because his sermon was an hour and 11 minutes long, I believe. So I, I didn't listen to the entire sermon. I just listened to about 15 minutes of it. And in 15 minutes, he used six different Bible translations. None of them were the King James, but six different Bible translations. Why would you do that? I mean, why do you have a group of people sitting here and instead of reading from one translation, whatever it might be, you just mix it all up with all these different translations. Why do you suppose a preacher would do that? Well, I can tell you why. Because you can go into all these different translations, and if you're looking for something to support what you already believe, then you're going to find a translation out there somewhere that's already thought of it, what you want. And so you just keep picking and choosing the translation until you find one that fits what you want to teach. And that's exactly what's done. Satan loves to mistranslate the Bible. And so what happens is you put out this pure fabrication of what people think God said or they want to believe that God said, but it's not actually what God said. This is why we stick with the verbal equivalency method of trying to translate the Scriptures. So Satan knows this, that if he can destroy the Bible and if he can make man have his own idea of what God said rather than what God actually said, then he has the victory. See, the Word of God is able to make us wise unto salvation. The Bible tells us that we're born again by the Word of God. And so what happens when you pervert the Word of God? Well, you lose salvation. You don't have the truth anymore. Now, a third way that Satan perverts the written Word of God is by revelation Satan deceives people concerning the Word of God with extra-biblical revelation. Now, there isn't any other revelation of God than what we have in His Word. Everything that we know about God comes through the written Word. But there are, other, there are people that claim that they have received another revelation. It's outside of God's Word. They have another doctrine that they've had something revealed to them. Now, interestingly, in that same sermon that I was listening to, Rick Warren's, he was dealing with this very issue. And sadly, he was telling people that it's possible for you to know that God speaks directly to you in a direct manner, that God speaks to you. In other words, you can get a revelation from God. I don't see that in the Scriptures. There's only one revelation from God, and that comes through the 66 books of the Bible. And any time that anybody wants to add something to the 66 books of the Bible, then they are defying the Word of God. They're defying God himself. Now, the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Galatians. He said, if there's anybody who comes to you with any other doctrine than what you have received, even, he said, if it is an angel from heaven who comes to you with any other doctrine than what we have preached unto you, what you have received, that person is to be accursed. But what do people do? You have the Mormons, you have the Jehovah Witnesses, you have the Seventh-day Adventists, you have the Roman Catholics, even that claim that they have another revelation from God more than what you find in the Bible. Now, finally then, Satan in the Millennial Kingdom will not be able to deceive about the living word. Jesus is the living word. And what Satan is trying to do now is to destroy the truth of the humanity and the deity of Christ. John chapter 1, verse number 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And of course there it's speaking of the living word. It's talking about Jesus Christ himself. Now the Mormons tell you 
that you can be a God just like Jesus is a God. Satan and Jesus, they say, were cut out of the same cloth. Both of them are created beings. And what happened was that Jesus became good and Satan became evil. Who do you think started that lie? Well, that's Satan. He deceives people by giving people lies about the living word. And the JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, they say Jesus is a God. He is a little God. He's not Jehovah God, meaning he's not the almighty God creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, don't you think that Satan would love to be loose during the millennial kingdom to perpetuate that lie? Of course he would. And so God has to remove him from the millennial kingdom so that he doesn't tear down the person of Jesus Christ like the Mormons do, like the Jehovah Witnesses do. And I'll even go further to say it like the Roman Catholics do. The Roman Catholics have elevated another god, Mary. Mary's next to deity to them. And so they don't have a trinity, they have a quaternity. Well, when anyone makes the claim... These kinds of claims about Jesus, or, or if they say things like even that you can get to heaven by your own efforts, if they say you can get to heaven by your good works, if they say that you can get to heaven by keeping a sacramental system, all of that destroys the living word of God. Every bit of it tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that his blood and his blood alone is the only way that anybody's going to be saved. So Satan has to be thrown into the prison. He has to be kept away from the millennial kingdom so he can't deceive people. And I advise you right now, stay away from these kinds of lies of the devil because Satan is not bound today. He's free to do whatever he wants to do nearly today. So stay away from all those deceptions. Now Satan is active. He blinds people to the gospel of Christ. And if you are a victim of that deception, then one day you're going to end up in the very same place that Satan is going to be. One day his final destruction comes in the lake of fire, and all who have been deceived by him will go to the same place. Now we'll stop there, and we'll come back to some other aspects of the millennial kingdom next time, and we'll talk about what a great place that's going to be, because we don't have to worry about Satan. He'll be in the prison why we enjoy all of the good things that happen in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. And Lord, we thank you for what you've shown us in your word. Help us to stand strong on the truth of the Bible. And Lord, we pray that we might not be guilty of misinterpretation. We don't want to be guilty of mistranslating the word of God. We don't want to be guilty of saying we have some other revelation because it's all right here in your written word. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to stand strong on that and to be a church that always teaches the truth of your word. Bless us as we sing tonight and go our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray.